Chapter Thirty Three of Olive. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Olive by Dinah Maria Craik. Chapter Thirty Three. It was again the season of late summer, and time's soothing shadow had risen up between the daughter and her grief. The grave in the beautiful churchyard of Harbury was bright with many months' growth of grass and flowers. It never looked dreary, nay, often seemed almost to smile. It was watered by no tears, it never had been. Those which Olive shed were only for her own loneliness, and at times she felt that even these were wrong. Many people, seeing how calm she was, and how, after a season, she fell into her old pursuits and her kindly duties to all around, used to say, who would have thought that Miss Rothsay would have forgotten her mother so easily? But she did not forget. Selfish, worldly mourners are they, who think that the memory of the beloved lost can only be kept green by tears. Olive Rothsay was not of these. To her, her mother's departure appeared no more like death than did one divine parting, with reverence be it spoken, appear to those who stood and looked upward from the hill of Bethany. And thus should we think upon all happy and holy deaths, if we fully and truly believed the faith we own. Olive did not forget her mother. She could as soon have forgotten her own soul. In all her actions, words, and thoughts, this most sacred memory abided, a continual presence, silent as sweet, and sweet as holy. When her many and most affectionate friends had beguiled her into cheerfulness, so that they fancied she had put aside her sorrow, she used to say in her heart, See, mother, I can think of you and not grieve. I would not that it should pain you to know I suffer still. Yet human feelings could not utterly be suppressed, and there were many times when at night-time she buried her face on the now lonely pillow and stretched out her arms into the empty darkness, crying, My mother! Oh, my mother! But then strong love came between Olive and her agony, whispering that wherever her spirit abided, the mother could not forget her child. Olive looked very calm now, as she sat with Mrs. Gwynne in the bay window of the little drawing-room at the parsonage, engaged in some light work, with Eily reading a lesson at her knee. It was a lesson, too, taken from that lore, at once the most simple and most divine, the Gospels of the New Testament. "'I thought my son would prove himself right in all his opinions,' observed Mrs. Gwynne, when the lesson was over and the child had run away. I knew he would allow Eily to learn everything at the right time. Olive made no answer. Her thoughts turned to the day, now some months back, when, stung by the disobedience and falsehood that lay hid in a young mind which knew no higher law than a human parent's command, Harold had come to her for counsel. She remembered his almost despairing words. "'Teach the child as you will. True or false, I care not.' so that she becomes like yourself, and is saved from those doubts which rack her father's soul. Harold Gwynne was not singular in this. Scarcely ever was there an unbeliever who desired to see his own skepticism reflected in his child. Mrs. Gwynne continued, "'I don't think I can ever sufficiently thank you, my dear Miss Rothsay. Say Olive, as you generally do, for her Christian name sounded so sweet and homelike from Harold's mother, especially now. Olive, then, my dear, how good you are to take Eily so entirely under your care and teaching! But for that we must have sent her to some school from home, and I will not conceal from you that would have been a great sacrifice, even in a worldly point of view, since our income is much diminished, by my son's having been obliged to resign his duties altogether, and take a curate. 
But tell me, do you think Harold looks any better? What an anxious summer this has been. And Olive, hearing the heavy sigh of the mother, whose whole existence was bound up in her son, felt that there was something holy even in that deceit, or rather concealment, wherein she herself was now a sorely tried sharer. "'You must not be too anxious,' she said. "'You know that there is nothing dangerous in Mr. Gwynne's state of health, only his brain has been overworked.' "'I suppose so, and perhaps it was the best plan for him to give up all clerical duties for a time. I think, too, that these frequent absences do him good.' "'I hope so, too.' Besides, seeing that he is not positively disabled by illness, his parishioners might think it peculiar that he should continually remain among them, and yet abstain from preaching. But my Harold is a strange being, he always was. Sometimes I think his heart is not in his calling, that he would have been more happy as a man of science than as a clergyman. Yet of late he has ceased even that favourite pursuit, and though he spends whole days in his study, I sometimes find that he has not displaced one book except the large Bible which I gave him when he went to college. God bless him, my dear Harold." Olive's inmost heart echoed the blessing, and in the same words. For of late, perhaps with more frequently hearing him called by the familiar home appellation, she had thought of him less as Mr. Gwynne than as Harold. "'I wonder what makes your blithe crystal so late,' observed Mrs. Gwynne, abruptly, as if disliking to betray further emotion. Lyle Derwent promised to bring her himself, much against his will, though," she added, smiling. He seems quite afraid of Miss Manners. He says she teases him so. But she suffers no one else to do it. If I say a word against Lyle's little peculiarity, she is quite indignant. I rather think she likes him. That is, as much as she likes any of her friends. There is little depth of affection in Crystal's nature. She is too proud. She feels no need of love and therefore cares not to win it. Do you know, Olive, continued Mrs. Gwynne, if I must expose all my weaknesses, there was a time when I watched Miss Manners more closely than any one guesses. It was from a mother's jealousy over her son's happiness, for I often heard her name coupled with Harold's. So have I more than once, said Olive, but I thought at the time how idle was the rumour. It was idle, my dear, but I did not quite think so then. Indeed. There was a little quick gesture of surprise, and Olive, ceasing her work, looked inquiringly at Mrs. Gwynne. Men cannot do without love, and having once been married, Harold's necessity for a good wife's sympathy and affection is the greater. I always expected that my son would marry again, and therefore I have eagerly watched every young woman whom he might meet in society and be disposed to choose. All men, especially clergymen, are better married, at least in my opinion. Even you yourself as Harold's friend, his most valued friend, must acknowledge that he would be much happier with a second wife." What was there in this frank speech that smote Olive with a secret pain? Was it the unconscious distinction drawn between her and all other women on whom Harold might look with admiring eyes, so that his mother, while calling her his friend, never dreamed of her being anything more? Olive knew not whence came the pain, yet she still felt it was there. Certainly he would, she answered, speaking in a slow, quiet tone. Nevertheless, I should scarcely think Crystal a girl whom Mr. Gwynne would be likely to select. Nor I. At first, deeming her something like the first Mrs. Harold, I had my doubts, but they quickly vanished. My son will never marry Crystal Manners. Olive, sitting at the window, looked up. It seemed to her as if over the room had come a lightness like the passing away of the cloud.
"'Nor, at present,' pursued Mrs. Gwynne, "'does it appear to me likely that he will marry at all. "'I fear that domestic love, "'the strong yet quiet tenderness of a husband to a wife, "'is not in his nature. "'Passion is, or was, in his youth, "'but he is not young now. "'In his first hasty marriage I knew that the fire "'would soon burn itself out. "'It has left nothing but ashes. "'Once he deceived himself, "'and sorely he has reaped the fruits of his folly.' The result is that he will live to old age without ever having known the blessing of true love. "'Is that so mournful, then?' said Olive, more as if thinking aloud than speaking. Mrs. Gwynne did not hear the words, for she had started up at the sound of a horse's hoofs at the gate. "'If that should be Harold! He said he would be at home this week or next. It is! It is he! How glad I am! That is, I am glad that he should be in time to see the Fledgers and Miss Manners before their journey to-morrow.' Thus, from long habit, trying to make excuses for her overflowing tenderness, she hurried out. Olive heard Mr. Gwynne's voice in the hall, his anxious tender inquiry for his mother, even the quick flying step of little Eily bounding to meet Papa. She paused, her work fell and a mist came over her eyes. She felt then, as she had sometimes done before, though never so strongly, that it was hard to be in the world alone. This thought haunted her a while until at last it was banished by the influence of one of those pleasant social evenings, such as were often spent at the parsonage. The whole party, including Crystal and Lyle, were assembled in the twilight, the two latter keeping up a sort of Benedict and Beatrice warfare. Harold and his mother seemed both very quiet. They sat close together, her hand sometimes resting caressingly on his shoulder or his knee. It was a new thing, this outward show of affection, but of late since his health had declined, and in truth he had often looked and been very ill, there had come a touching softness between the mother and son. Olive Rothsay sat a little apart, a single lamp lighting her at her work, for she was not idle. Following her old master's example, she was continually making studies from life for the picture on which she was engaged. She took a pleasure in filling it with idealized heads, of which the originals had place in her own warm affections. Crystal was there, with her gracefully turned throat, and the singular charm of her black eyes and fair hair. Lyle, too, with his delicate, womanish, but yet handsome face. Nor was Mrs. Gwynne forgotten. Olive made great use of her well-outlined form and her majestic sweep of drapery. There was one only of the group who had not been limbed by Miss Rothsay. "'If I were my brother-in-law I should take it as quite an ill compliment that you had never asked him to sit,' observed Lyle. "'But,' he added in a whisper, I don't suppose any artist would care to paint such a hard, rugged-looking fellow as Gwynne. Olive looked on the pretty red and white of the boyish dabbler in art, for Lyle had lately taken a fancy that way too, and then at the countenance he maligned. She did not say a word, but Lyle hovering round found his interference somewhat sharply put aside during the whole evening. When assembled round the supper-table they talked of Crystal's journey. It was undertaken by invitation of Mrs. Fludger, to whom the young damsel had made herself quite indispensable. Her liveliness charmed away the idle lady's ennui, while her pride and love of aristocratic exclusiveness equally gratified the same feelings for her patroness. And from the mist that enwrapped her origin, the ingenious and perhaps self-deceived young creature had contrived to evolve such a grand fable of ancient descent and noble but reduced family that everybody regarded her in the same light as she regarded herself. And surely, as the quick-sighted Mrs. Gwynne often said, no daughter of a long illustrious line was ever prouder than Crystal Manners. 
She indulged the party with a brilliant account of Mrs. Fledger's anticipations of pleasure at Brighton, whither the whole family at the hall were bound. "'Really we shall be quite desolate without a single soul left at Farnwood, shall we not, Olive?' observed Mrs. Gwynne. Olive answered, "'Yes, very,' without much considering of the matter. Her thoughts were with Harold, who was leaning back in his chair, absorbed in one of those fits of musing which with him were not unfrequent, and which no one ever regarded save herself. How deeply solemn it was to her at such times, to feel that she alone held the key of his soul, that it lay open, with all its secrets, to her and to her alone. What marvel was it if this knowledge sometimes moved her with strange sensations? Most of all, while beholding the reserved exterior which he bore in society, she remembered the times when she had seen him goaded into terrible emotion, or softened to the weakness of a child. At Olive's mechanical affirmative, Lyle Derwent brightened up amazingly. "'Miss Rothsay, I—I I don't intend going away, believe me.' Crystal turned quickly round. "'What are you saying, Mr. Derwent?' He hung his head and looked foolish. "'I mean that Brighton is too gay and thoughtless and noisy a place for me. I would rather stay at Harbury.' "'You fickle, changeable, sentimental creature! I wouldn't be a man like you for the world!' and reckless Crystal burst into a fit of laughter much louder than seemed warranted by the occasion. Lyle seemed much annoyed, whereupon his friend Miss Rothsay considerately interposed, and passed to some other subject which lasted until the hour of departure. The three walked to the dell together, Crystal jesting incessantly, either with or at Lyle Derwent. Olive walked beside them rather silent than otherwise. She had been so used to walk home with Harold Gwynne that any other companionship along the old familiar road seemed unnatural. As she passed along, from every bush, every tree, every winding of the lane seemed to start some ghost-like memory, until there came over her a feeling almost of fear, to find how full her thoughts were of this one friend, how to pass from his presence was like passing into gloom, and the sense of his absence seemed a heavy void. It was not so while my mother lived. Olive murmured sorrowfully. I never needed any friend but her. What am I doing? What is coming over me? She trembled and dared not answer the question. At the dell they parted from Lyle. I shall see you once again before you leave, I hope, he said to Crystal. Oh, yes, you will not get rid of your tormentor so easily. Get rid of you, fair cruelty. Would a man wish to put out the sun because it scorches him sometimes? cried Lyle lifted to the seventh heaven of poetic fervour by the influence of a balmy night and a glorious harvest moon. Which said luminary, shining on Crystal's face, saw there, she only, pale Lady Moon, an expression fine and rare, quivering lips, eyes not merely bright but flaming, as such dark eyes only can. As Olive was entering the hall door, Miss Manners, a little in the rear, fell, crying out as with pain, she was quickly assisted into the house, where, recovering, she complained of having sprained her ankle. Olive, full of compassion, laid her on the sofa, and hurried away for some simple medicaments, leaving Crystal alone. That young lady, as soon as she heard Miss Rothsay's steps overhead, bounded to the half-open window, moving quite as easily on the injured foot as on the other. Eagerly she listened, and soon was rewarded by hearing Lyle's voice caroling pathetically down the road, the ditty, Yo ti voglio ben assai, ma tu non pensi a me. "'Tis my song, mine, I taught him,' said Crystal, laughing to herself. He thought to stay behind and escape me and my cruelty. But we shall see, 
we shall see. Though in her air was a triumphant, girlish coquetry, yet something there was of a woman's passion, too. But she heard a descending step, and had only just time to regain her invalid attitude and her doleful countenance when Olive entered. "'This accident is most unfortunate,' said Miss Rothsay. "'How will you manage your journey to-morrow?' "'I shall not be able to go,' said Crystal in a piteous voice, though over her averted face broke a comical smile. "'Are you really so much hurt, my dear?' "'Do you doubt it?' was the sharp reply. "'I am sorry to trouble you, but I really am unable to leave the dell.' Very often did she try Olive's patience thus, but the faithful daughter always remembered those last words, "'Take care of Crystal.' So, excusing all, she tended the young sufferer carefully until midnight, and then went downstairs secretly to perform a little act of self-denial by giving up an engagement she had made for the morrow. While writing to renounce it, she felt, with a renewed sense of vague apprehension, how keen a pleasure it was she thus resigned, a whole long day in the forest with her pet Eily, Eily's grandmamma, and Harold Gwynne. End of chapter 33